And the young ones are headed off for King's Kids, and I would invite you please to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. We're getting ready for Easter, thinking about that great day of resurrection and what God did for us that we could not do for ourselves on the cross of Calvary, where Jesus Christ took upon himself the debt, the punishment for my sin, for your sin, and in time and space he paid that eternal debt, spent time in the grave, rose again to new life, and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. It's a mystery for us. The Apostle Paul writes about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and maybe you remember that we worked on that verse at Easter last time this year. Uh, we're working on it again. Because if you're like me, you tend to forget, don't you? Uh, some of those things that we put into our heads and we think, boy, I'm going to remember that. Just it seems like almost the next minute it's gone. So we're going to practice up a little bit and work on that together. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. Listen please as I read first several verses here. Paul, by the way, is writing from a Roman prison, and he is writing to the church at Philippi. He had spent some time with them. There was the one who established that congregation, um, and he's writing back to them now, sometimes reminding them of some important things that they previously taught them. He says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Interesting comment from a man in prison. Rejoice. For me, to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you, it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we, meaning the Christians, are the circumcision who worship God in spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me these I have counted loss for Christ. Yes, indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, 
do not count myself to have apprehended. But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. <coughs> Excuse me a minute, I'm going to take my little cough drop out. <coughs> I don't know about you, but in the wintertime we like to run a humidifier. And I forgot to put water in it last night. <laughs> At about 2.30 this morning I woke up and everything was just dry and miserable. So I'm trying to get a little moisture down there this morning. <clears throat> Question for you. What is it that motivates your life? What is it that causes you to get up out of bed? Is it success? Are you looking for that, that elusive thing called success? It sort of tells you you've arrived, you know? Is it money? Like the little song, I owe, I owe, so off to work I go, kind of thing. Is that what motivates you? You've got to get up, you've got to go to work, you've got to earn money and pay the bills. Is it prestige? Do you want people to think well of you? So everything you do, the clothes you buy, the things you do, the places you go, all of it is with that idea of really bringing prestige to yourself and, and importance. Is it power? Do you want to find yourself in a position where you have control over other people and over things and over finances? You want to be in charge? You want that power? Or maybe the thing that motivates your life is just plain fun. I want to have fun. And so everything you do is geared to have fun. You work Monday through Friday just so you can have fun with your money and time and all that on the weekend. And, and, and everything is geared toward fun. Everybody naturally wants to be on top. Everybody wants to have enough money, but how much money is enough money? Everybody wants to be well thought of. Everybody wants to have fun. But being on top doesn't last, does it? Others surpass us. There's never quite enough money, you know, as soon as you buy, I don't even know what tablet number it is now, 9, 10, 8, 6, I don't know, but as soon as you buy yours, the next one comes out next week, and, and you you know, when you buy the new car, that thing depreciates in value. The minute you sign on the dotted line, you've just lost, you can turn around and sell it right back to the dealer, and he's not going to give you what you just paid for. Everybody drives a used car. Everybody. Okay? The stuff that we focus our lives on just doesn't last. It doesn't satisfy. We have enough, we want more because somebody else has what we don't have. And we're envious and we're greedy and on all these things and we pursue stuff with our lives because that is the thing that drives us. 
What is it that drives your life? You know, if we look at chapter 3 of Philippians, Paul is sounding some familiar warnings to us, things maybe that we've heard in our study of 2 Peter that we just concluded. Paul is warning them about the danger of false teachers. Now he uses a word here in verse 2. It says, beware of the mutilation. He's, he's kind of making a little play on words and it's kind of graphic. The Jews had as the sign of the covenant the act of circumcision, which was given to Moses by God. It was a sign, excuse me, to Abraham by God. It was the, the sign that Abraham would bear in his own body that he was in a covenant relationship with Almighty God. And that act of circumcision was elevated to such a level in even among the New Testament believers, some who had come out of Judaism said, you know, we've got these Gentiles coming and they're coming to believe in Jesus, but they haven't been circumcised and they've got to be or they can't be saved. Now Paul settled that issue along with Peter and James and the others there in the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. They settled that problem. Paul writes the book of Galatians to settle that problem. But it kept coming back up. And here were these people, now they've gotten to Philippi, and they're disturbing the, the believers there. They're saying, listen, you Gentiles, you've got to be saved. Paul calls them a rather uncomplimentary term. And he says, we, the Christians, are the real circumcision because it's not a circumcision done in the physical body. It's a circumcision. It's a cutting away that's done in the heart by the Spirit of God. It's a cutting away of all of that stuff that the world lives by, that the world values, that the unbeliever pursues with a passion. This world and those who are in and of this world are focused only on the things of this world. Pleasure, power, money, prestige, all that stuff drives them, drives them, drives them every day of their lives. If you've come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you realize the futility of those things. They don't last. They don't satisfy. And they don't get you in to heaven. They are worthless. They are, as Paul calls them, rubbish. The word he uses is a word we well know in the farming community, manure. That's it. All that stuff that we thought was so important is worthless. Because it doesn't save and it doesn't satisfy. Now, Paul, just in case his readers um, aren't sure, he shares his own experience. He says, now, you want to brag in the flesh? Okay, for a moment, let's brag. I'm an Israelite. 
I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I came from that same tribe that the very first king of Israel came from. I mean, I'm a Pharisee. I've done all these things. I am blameless. I was so interested in the things of, of Judaism that I persecuted this church, this new body of believers, these Christ followers. I persecuted them, he tells us in other places, to the death. So you'd think that, wow, if God was impressed with anybody, God would be impressed with Paul, right? Paul says, I, I put all that aside. It's meaningless. It's worthless. One thing is valuable. One thing, Paul says, drives my life. And it is Jesus Christ. Verse 8. I count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Think about, for just a moment, what did Paul give up? He was a member of the, or of the Pharisees. They were the, looked upon as some of the most righteous and religious people in the nation of Israel. They had all their laws and all their standards and all their rituals, and, and Paul was well versed in all that. He, was, he studied under the best. The guy's name was Gamaliel. He studied under the best, and Paul says in Acts that he excelled beyond his peers. Paul was moving toward being the next Gamaliel, the next great, great teacher in Israel. And he gave all that up. It's like, you know, being appointed to the presidency of Harvard or something. And he said, you know what? That's a bunch of trash. I'm going to follow Christ. And all the stuff that would have gone with that Wealth and power and prestige and honor and all the things that we think are so important. Paul gave it up for Jesus Christ. Look at what else he says. He says, to be found in him, verse 8, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which is from God by faith. Paul wanted to be in God's presence. He knew that he had no righteousness of his own, all of his own best efforts. Paul, at his most holy, didn't make it. And the only way he was going to be in God's presence forever is if God were to give him a righteousness which Paul did not possess. And that's the righteousness of Christ. There's an old hymn we don't sing anymore. I wish we did. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, thy beauties are my glorious dress. Jesus, thy blood, thy righteousness, thy beauties are my glorious dress. Paul was counting everything lost so that he might know Christ. But look at what he says here. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. First of all, I want us to understand Paul, when he became a Christian, 
stopped serving a system and began a relationship. I don't want you to miss this point because it's huge. It's, it's everything. There are a lot of people who are in church buildings today. They got the little steeple on top. I'm, I'm kind of glad ours doesn't. I, I like the plain, you know, the, the, I like the meeting house idea. Because this building is not the church. You know that, don't you? This building's not the church. This is the meeting house. This is the place where the church meets. You are the church. You're the church. And the Apostle Paul exchanged a system of behavior for a relationship with a person. People today go to churches. Some of them, you know, have all kinds of fancy stuff. And they've got incense, and they've got candles, and they've got bells, and they've got music, and they've got all kinds of things. And they've got processions, and they've got big choirs. And some, you know, and there's all this stuff. And some of them are just kind of ordinary churches, but they do the same thing over and over and over again every week. And, and they, maybe they haven't heard the gospel in years. Oh, they might read from the Old Testament reading and the New Testament reading, and, and then the preacher stands up and he talks, or she talks sometimes for 10 or 15 minutes, sermonettes for Christianettes, as my father-in-law used to say. And, uh, you know, on, on they go. And it's the same thing every week, week in, week out, week in, week out. And it makes no difference in their lives. They're doing religious stuff thinking that they're pleasing God, but what they have is a religion. They have no relationship. Jesus invites us to a relationship with Him. He is a real person. He is God in the flesh. He is 100% God. He is 100% man. He knows what it's like to live life here in this world. He knows what it's like to face the temptations of this life. He knows what it's like to suffer pain and loss. He understands this life from a human perspective. So what are you facing in life? Wouldn't it be nice to be able to face it with someone you can have a personal relationship with? who's never going to leave you, who's never going to abandon you, who's going to walk with you through the, the storms of life, through the joys of life, always to be with you, and then you always to be with Him in eternity. That's what Paul was inviting his readers to experience. And the primary motivation, the thing that got Paul charged up, was the power of the resurrection. Resurrection means a coming to life again. That which is dead is brought to new life. It's, it's not a rebirth. I mean, and, and we think about it in springtime and we say, oh, you know, it's so nice to see the flowers again. But the flowers coming up, that's not a resurrection. That bulb under there is really not dead. I was looking at our tulips out in the front yard. Uh, we have a little circle out there with a 
fence and some tulips planted in front. And guess what? I've got some holes in my lines of plants there. Why? Because the bulb died. I don't know if a squirrel got in there and helped himself over the winter months or what happened, but the bulb is dead. It's rotted. It's gone. Those bulbs that made it through, that's not resurrection. That's just the cycle of you know, bulbs. That's just what they do. Resurrection is something, someone, person, who is dead. Their soul is separated from their body. Their body may even be decayed in the ground. And God gives them brand new physical life. The power of the resurrection. It becomes a motivation for Paul. It's, it's the reason that he gets up in the morning. Remember, he's in a Roman prison when he writes this letter. And he's there unjustly. He's there simply because he's preaching the truth. And he's been arrested, and he's been put in prison, and he's figuring, well, you know, while I'm here, I've got some parchments, got a little ink, let's do some writing. <laughs> and God uses Paul in that prison, inspiring Colossians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, the prison letters. I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful. Paul didn't despair. Paul didn't worry about whether or not he was going to get out of prison. Paul said in his mind, and we learn that as we keep reading, you know, if I die, I go to be with the Lord. That's good. Wow, that's exciting. I like that. If I stay here, well, that's beneficial for you. Paul says, if I was given a choice, I'm not sure which one I'd pick. That's Roger's paraphrase, but you can read about it in 1 chapter 1. I'm not sure which one I'd pick, Paul said. Why? Because Paul lived in the power of the resurrection. He knew that whether he lived or died, his life was infused with that supernatural life that comes from Jesus Christ. And everything that Paul did was meaningful, was valuable, was purposeful, was going to have an impact not just in this world, but in eternity to come. Is that what motivates you to get up in the morning? Do you know without a shadow of a doubt that the things that you're doing today, whether you're nailing a nail in with a hammer or you're filling in a blank in the, in the Excel spreadsheet, or what, do you know without a shadow of a doubt that what you're doing is given to you by God and He can use it for now, for good things, to bring the gospel to others, and that it will make a difference in eternity? Or are you busy pursuing the stuff that doesn't last? Oh, you need to get up each morning and go to work and pay the bills. That's part of responsible citizenship. That's part of being a responsible Christian, too. Paul said to the believers in Thessalonica, apparently there were some guys that were so convinced that Jesus was going to come back like, you know, the week after Tuesday or something, that, that they just sat down and did nothing. And Paul says, well, you know what? If they don't, don't work, they don't eat. You know, there is that sense that we have to fulfill our responsibilities. But it's not just to work to put food in our mouths. It's to work to fulfill our responsibilities so that our whole life testimony 
brings glory to Christ so that in the mundane things of life, when other people are going through hard times and they see us going through hard times and they see us as believers and how we handle that, they can ask us questions and we can share Christ. So that means that what you're doing in school, that means that what you're doing at work can have and does have and should have eternal value. The ordinary stuff of life, it's a whole mindset. If it's a self-centered mindset, you will be completely dissatisfied with life. But if it's a Christ-centered mindset, then everything, the most mundane things that go on in our lives can have eternal value and meaning because we're living for Jesus Christ. Paul says he wants to live in that, to know Him Jesus first, personally, and to know the power of His resurrection. And the third thing, to know the fellowship of His sufferings. Now, there is no way that you and I can share in the sufferings of Jesus Christ when it comes to salvation. Can't do that. Only Jesus could offer Himself as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So that's not what Paul is thinking about. But how else did Jesus suffer? Yes, he was on the cross. He took upon himself the wrath of Almighty God for our sin. But that's not why the religious leaders got him to the cross. Why did the religious leaders want Jesus put to death? Not to, cause, not to affect our salvation. They wanted Jesus put to death because Jesus spoke the truth. Jesus spoke the truth. He exposed the lies. He exposed the religious hypocrisy of those who should have been setting the example for their people. And the leadership couldn't stand it. Jesus, from their perspective, was crucified because he testified to the truth. Can you and I do that? Mm -hmm. We sure can. Might you and I suffer because we tell the truth? Absolutely. And it is in that sense that we can share in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. We can live a life that demonstrates the reality of God. We can let our words speak the truth of God. We can let our lives speak the truth of God and understand that all those who are opposed to the truth are then going to be opposed to us. Don't think that that's some strange thing. But it is, in fact, evidence that we are sharing in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. That's what motivated Paul to get up in the morning. He was so completely sold out to Jesus. He was so completely sold out to the truth of God's word that he was willing to get up the next day there in the prison and keep living for Jesus. That's the power of the resurrection. 
When that grasps our minds, when we begin to understand that this life is not about us, it's not about us getting all the things that we want in life, it's not about us having all the pleasures and, and fun that we think we ought to get, but this life is in fact a preparation. It's like preschool. I used to say kindergarten, but I think it's even more basic than that. It's kind of like preschool. You know? It, it's where you're preparing with the most basic and elementary things, getting ready to launch into eternity. Which is real life. That's where we're destined for. That's where we belong. Is in eternity. That's what God has called us to. This world is passing away. And it's present tense passing away. We saw that in 2 Peter, didn't we? In the last chapter, and it talks about this world is already, right now, this minute, passing away. Well, beloved, since that is true, I don't want to put all my eggs in that basket. I don't want to invest my life here trying to pursue the things that this world has because it's already collapsing. It's already breaking. It's already falling apart. It's already dying. It's already coming to nothing. I want to invest my life in eternity. I want to use the time that God's given me now living in the power of the resurrection under the influence of that whole understanding of new life in Christ so that when I enjoy the physical resurrection that God has promised me, I can step into eternity without fear, without doubt. Verse 11 is interesting. He says, well, I've got to pick it up in verse 10, being conformed to his death. Now again, that's not, that's not the, the, salva the death that resulted in our salvation. Paul is thinking about his physical death. Jesus, being 100% human, had his human spirit separated from his human body. That's what death is. When our spirit, which is really us, departs from these frail bodies. There's a separation there. And Paul wants his readers to understand that he is conformed to Christ in his... He's separated. He's separated from the world. Other places he talks about dying to self and being dead to the things of this world. It means that we're separated from them. They don't hold sway over us like they used to when they were deep down within us. And then he says, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. I wish our English language was a little clearer here at this point. The idea, and it comes through very clearly in the original, is that it's out from among the dead. Think of it this way. Every human being dies. It's appointed unto a man once to die, right? So here we have all of these people of all ages, they've all died, there they are. Some are believers, some are unbelievers. And in the resurrection, 
In that first resurrection that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, he says Christ is the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ's at his coming. So out from all of humanity which has died, first we have Jesus Christ. He is the first fruits. After that, out from all of that humanity that has died, God resurrects those who have trusted in Him. Beloved, that's what we're looking for. That's what happens at the rapture of the church. If you and I live long enough and we die physically, our soul is separated from our body and we go to be with Jesus Christ, we're looking for the resurrection. That out from among all of the dead of all of humanity, God is going to raise up those who are His. Oh, there's going to be a resurrection for the rest. You read about it in Revelation chapter 20. It's the great white throne judgment. They ultimately will be resurrected and they will stand before Almighty God as the judge and their names will be compared with the book of life and their names won't be there and they will be judged according to their deeds and they will be cast forever into the lake of fire. But we who know Jesus Christ, we are out from that. We are separate from the world. We're, we're not... We're going to be there as spectators, but that's all. We don't ever have to worry about the second death because we've been resurrected out from the dead. Those who are permanently separated from God. That's what Paul's talking about. But then he, he wants his readers to understand. He says, verse 12, Not that I've already attained or I'm already perfected, but I press on. Paul sees what God is going to do. He sees how things are going to be worked out along the way. And, and he knows what waits for him in eternity. And so that becomes the motivation for him to get up today and tomorrow and the next day and to go plodding along. He knows he's not perfect. He knows he hasn't attained yet what is ultimately going to be his but he keeps going forward, one step at a time, one day at a time. Why can he do that? Because he's not following a system of works. He's walking with a real person with whom he has a relationship, Jesus Christ. For those of you who like to run, it's hard to run alone, isn't it? To get yourself up in the morning at 5 o'clock or 4 o'clock or 6.30, pull on your running shoes and go out when it's 24 degrees and a 3 mile an hour wind and you're out there running. But if you know you have a running partner, it's a lot easier, isn't it? It's a lot easier hard to live this life. It's not easy. There's a lot of bumps in the road. There's a lot of cold, hard mornings. There's a lot of times when we feel like we've run right smack into a brick wall. But to know that we are running with Jesus Christ, the one who has been raised from the dead, the one with whom we can have a personal relationship, 
that makes the running so much easier. Do you know Jesus Christ? Do you know the power of the resurrection? Do you understand at all what the Apostle Paul is talking about? Or are you still trying to live in two worlds? Or are you still rejecting Jesus Christ? Beloved, unless you come to Jesus Christ wholeheartedly, you're not going to understand what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. But if you come to Jesus Christ with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, you'll know, and you'll run, and you'll win, and you'll rejoice, and when you get to glory, you're going to hear your Savior say, Welcome home. Well done. Good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, all of this begins when we humble ourselves before you and cry out for mercy. You illustrated it when you humbled yourself and left heaven's throne, took on the form of a man, died in our place. Lord Jesus, help us to count everything that this world thinks is important as loss for the excellency of knowing the person of Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, help us to run that race even though it's hard knowing that Jesus is running with us, knowing that he will never forsake us, that he'll never fail us. Help us, Father, to keep our eyes fixed on eternity and to know the power of the resurrection and the fellowship of your sufferings and to know that none of these things are in vain. Because, Lord, when we stand before you one day, we will be so thankful for what you have done in our lives. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know Jesus Christ, I pray that they'll not leave this place without talking to one of us, the folks up here on the platform, or to myself. Father, we want folks to know Jesus Christ and to be fully persuaded of who he is and what he has done. That he is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, Father, we long to see people coming to know Christ in salvation. And Lord, if there's somebody here this morning that's been playing the game, and they've been trying to live in two worlds, I pray, Father, that today they will stop being duplicitous. They will give themselves fully to you. Help us, Lord. Help us to run the race. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.